Well, we're going to read the Bible together just now. We're going to turn to uh, John chapter 3, first of all, and then to Ephesians chapter 2. We are, as John said, looking at this theme, this doctrine of irresistible grace tonight. And uh, as is common, as we look at these doctrines, we tend to jump about the Scriptures a little bit. But uh, we have two readings that we want to look at just together tonight, which we will refer to in a moment. The first one from John chapter 3, the opening words of the encounter with um, Jesus and Nicodemus. So, John chapter 3, if you've got one of the Red Pew Bibles, it's page 1065, and we remember that as we read this is God's Word. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, but for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Amen. Then we turn to Ephesians, over to Ephesians chapter 2 in these uh, well-known verses that tell us it is by grace we have been saved. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, page 1174, 1174. Paul writing to the believers in Ephesus, and he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the, desire, the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated him in the heavenly seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. We trust that God will bless His Word to us. So wonderful just to hear those words and hear us listening, as it were, so carefully to God's perfect Word. Irresistible grace. Here's a scenario that might not be all that hard for you to imagine. 
you have a friend or a family member who is not a Christian, and you're close to them, and, and you've had several conversations with them. So far, it has not seemed to make an awful lot of difference. They either look at you in that sort of, well, that's nice for you, but it's not for me kind of way, or they do appear interested, and you think you've sort of made some sort of breakthrough, but then it, it doesn't really go anywhere. But you keep looking for opportunities to speak and to listen and to invite. And here's the question. In that situation where you have a, a, a person that you care for and you really want to see becoming a Christian, what is your hope in that situation? On, on what does your hope rest? Is it, for example, that you might find some really great way of explaining the gospel that will work, some, some way of, of describing what Jesus has done that will really cut through? Or, or, or is it that, that they themselves will, will work it out, that their, their thinking will clarify, that they'll, they'll start to question, and it will lead to, to answers? Those are certainly things that you would encourage, aren't they? But, but I want to suggest that they are not where your ultimate hope lies for your friend. Your hope, I would suggest, lies in God, in God Himself, in His ability to save. And I also want to suggest that, that, that that's something that you show you believe in when you pray. Because when you pray, you will, of course, pray for opportunities to speak and for clarity. We've been looking at that and as we've been going through the book of Acts, for clarity and boldness as you explain things and so on. And you will pray for them to, to realize certain things. But you will also pray, most fervently, you will pray, Lord, save my friend. Will you open their eyes? Will, will you draw them to yourself. Ultimately, your hope is in God to rescue. Now, Jim Packer, a great theologian, uh, makes that point in his super little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. If, if, you, if you want a, an easy read in terms of really complex subjects and to see how our responsibility and, and what God does fit uh, together. I, I can't recommend anything better than, than this little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It, it, it helps us to see that it is God's sovereignty that is the very basis for us to reach out to those uh, around us, and it is our hope for those uh, around us. And, and Jim Packer makes this strong point that one of the places where we show that we believe that God is sovereign and even that we acknowledge that we need God to be sovereign is when we're praying for our friends, because we pray, Lord, save them. And what we're praying for when we ask God to draw someone to Himself is really what we're looking at uh, tonight as we get to the fourth of our uh, five points of Calvinism, irresistible grace. Now, let's just recap a little so we get the flow. In, in, I have to say that in some of the treatments of, of these, it is this one that doesn't maybe get as much attention. There's not as much written on it. 
and we thought we would uh, still take the time just to look at it tonight in and of itself. Uh, and it gives us an opportunity perhaps to, to go slightly broader and to see how these things fit together. So let's remember where we've got to. T, a total depravity, and of course we've said that, that not all of it, we, we sort of want to change these titles uh, every time we look at them. We think there are, are better ways of describing them, maybe radical corruption, for example, for the first one. But every time we, we do that, we lose our tulips and we end up with Narcissus or something else, and, and it doesn't quite work in the same way. So, it's a good place to start. So, T, total deprav depravity, speaks about how broken we are. Sin has affected us in our totality. Not that we are as bad as we possibly could be, but that every part of us is affected by sin. And crucially, we're affected by sin so much that, that, that it leaves us unable to move towards God by ourselves. That's a really important starting point for everything that follows. The problem that we have is great, and so the solution must be great. It must be a, a sovereign divine solution. T, you, unconditional election, God chooses. He chooses a people for Himself out of rebellious humanity. His choosing is unconditional in that it is not conditioned by anything that is in those He chooses. So, He does not look at us and say, oh, that person is better than that person, or indeed that person will make good choices in the future. They have more potential. No, there's, there's nothing in us that conditions God's choice. L, limited atonement. Jesus does not die for everyone in a sort of a general way that doesn't actually achieve everything, like a sort of a good wish. He really actually pays for sin, and He pays for the sins of His people. In that sense, His, his, his atonement is limited, but again, we, we'd rather perhaps call this particular redemption. While His atoning death has, has infinite value, it is focused on those that God has chosen for Himself. And then we get to I, to irresistible grace. God applies that work to a person that He calls to Himself, as He calls them to Himself. And God's work of doing that cannot be frustrated. God irresistibly draws people to Himself. Now, before we unpack that, maybe something we should notice as we've been going through uh, these various points is that the various persons of the Trinity are involved in this great work to save us. So, T begins with us. It begins with our problem, the problem of human sin as we are rebels against God. You, unconditional election, speaks of the, the work of God the Father, God uh, choosing a people. L involves the Son, limited atonement, involves the a son as he dies for those that the Father has given him. And then tonight, I involves the work of the Holy Spirit as he applies what the Son has done to those people. So, you can see that all of the Trinity are involved in saving us. And, and sometimes, the way that people speak about God, we don't portray God in this way. In some presentations of what God is like, the, the the father is, is punishing an unwilling son, say, saying, well, look, if I want these people, I'm going to have to be hard on you sort of thing. 
and that, that, that the Son is not all that compliant, and, and, and that's just not the way it is at all. Or, or in other presentations, the, the, the Son is sort of twisting the arm of a begrudging Father and saying, well, I've died for these people. You better, you better let them into heaven. But, but you can see that, that that's not how it is at all. All persons of the Trinity are, are working together to save us and are willingly, and, and could we say enthusiastically, committed to this great work. So, what's irresistible grace about? Well, it, it refers to the Holy Spirit's work in bringing life to those that the Father has chosen, and the grace that He pours out upon them is ultimately effective. It's not ultimately resistant. Now, straight away, we need to acknowledge that people in general, sometimes people hear this and say, but surely God's grace is resistant, and we would say, absolutely it is. It certainly is. We resist God's grace at all times. In fact, you might remember that we were <clears throat> looking at the story of Stephen and Stephen's martyrdom in Acts chapter 7, and, and towards the crescendo of Stephen's sermon, he accuses those who are around him. You stiff-necked people, he said, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit, very clearly. And effectively, what Stephen is saying and what the Bible is saying is that by nature we are resistant to the Holy Spirit. We, we, we say no to God. That, that's the, the, the sort of the default position of the human heart. But when God determines to save and the Holy Spirit begins to work in a person's life, that work is not ultimately resistant. It is successful. In other words, when it comes to saving us, God wins. There's the bottom line. When it comes to saving us, God wins. A number of examples we could look at. Let's look at a classic example. It is the calling of Matthew in Matthew chapter 9. So, Jesus is gathering up His disciples at this point. Matthew 9 verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Very simple, the whole story really in, in that verse. Jesus comes along, Matthew's sitting at the tax collector's booth. And that doesn't mean an awful lot to us at the moment, but a, a, to the people of that day, that put Matthew in a very particular category. Matthew was, was not a good man. He was seen as an evil man. He was seen as a man who would, at the drop of a hat, put his own interests above the interests of uh, anyone else. He, he lined his own pockets at the expense of the, the common people. We, we've seen how the world and, and the media and, and the, 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 the great companies and so on uh, have turned on the Russian uh, oligarchs at the moment. They're, they're being highlighted as people who are, uh, uh, have got what they've got through often ill-gotten gains. And, and Matthew would have shared that sort of reputation with the people of his day. So, Jesus is not coming to Matthew because of something good in him. He would have been seen as a hopeless case as far as God was concerned, but he calls him very, very simply. He says to him, follow me. And Matthew, it says, arose and followed him. He doesn't argue. 
He doesn't take time to wrestle with it. He just follows. And, and what has happened? Well, Jesus has called him, and that call is effective. It, 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 it works. It has an effect. Now, of course, there are other places in the Bible, and some of us might be thinking of these. There are other places in the Bible where, where Jesus seems to, to call people in a very wide and general sense, and, and they do not respond, or at least at le they do not respond, or at least not everyone responds. Uh, we, we think, for example, of Jesus calling out to the crowd, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And not everyone came. Now, here's what we need to, to get our heads around. What, what the Bible talks about are two particular types of call, a general call and what the Bible calls an effective or an effectual or a special call. Theologians have distinguished between this general call that goes out to everyone who hears and an effective call that really brings someone to faith in Christ. General call is is genuine, but, but because of the orientation of people's hearts is ultimately something that does not produce results. But the effectual call is different. When I think of this, I, I think of uh, Billy Patterson. Some of you who are younger won't uh, remember Billy Patterson, but Billy Patterson was just the most a remarkable chap. He's not living far from here now, but for many years in his ministry, he worked alongside John Woodside in Kilkenny and then in Drogheda, and he worked as an evangelist. And it was Billy's pattern to just go out during the day and to knock doors, to work the doors of the great new estates around Kilkenny and Drogheda, and he would have talked to people about Jesus. He would have given out Bibles. He would have listened to what people's questions were. And he would have asked them questions. And through him, the, the, the call, general call, went out to many, 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 many people. But many people said, thanks, but no thanks. Indeed, some chased him. He would tell you stories of, of people who, who really ran him out of their property. Were they called? Well, in a, in a general sense, they were. They, they had been. Billy had, had said to them, you know, come to, come to Jesus. But there were some who came to faith, actually. There were many who came to faith. And they started reading the Bible, and they attended a Bible study, and, and they, they, they put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it turned out that, that with them, along with that general call, they had received a special call an effectual call. The Holy Spirit had worked in them irresistibly. Did Billy know who those people were as he knocked on a door? No, of course not. But God knew. And, and you see, most of the, the time in the Bible, whenever the Scriptures talk about people being called to being Christians, it seems that it's that effectual call that's in mind. So, for example, I'll just read a few verses here. Romans 1, 6 to 7, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. God is calling it. It's effective. 
Romans 11, 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And then Ephesians 4 and 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, so you see there that the call of God is effective in bringing people to faith. One of the ways we could almost uh, name Christians according to sort of biblical terms is those who have been called. Now, it is true, of course, that as we are called, there can be a struggle. There can be a struggle as we're looking on at that someone who's, who's wrestling with it. Or, or there can be a struggle from our point of view if we're the one who's being called. But, but God persists. It is, it is irresistible in that sense that God wins. God's the great pursuer, you see. He, he pursues His people. He just will not let them go. In other words, as we move through these T and U and I and, and L and I and P, there, there's no drop-off. There's no fallout. Those that God chooses are, are, are bought by the blood of Christ and are effectively called by the Spirit and, and will persevere, as we'll see. But he persists in calling his people. In, in 1890, a man called Francis Thompson wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. My old minister in Aberdeen used to quote this, and, and, and I got the impression that it was the most well-known poem in the world, but, but I don't think it is. Uh, but but uh, this is how it begins. I, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears I hid from him. So tremendously long poem. And, and, and Thompson describes the futility of hiding from God, who like a relentless hound tracks him down. It's quite a picture, isn't it? To, to picture God like one of those great Irish wolfhounds just bounding across the moor in pursuit of its prey. God stalking us and tearing us out and grinding us down until eventually we've nowhere left to run. It's wonderful to be captured by the Lord. Just wonderful. And he, he runs us down, He hunts us down because He loves us dearly and because Christ died for us. C.S. Lewis describes something of this struggle and being hunted by the Lord. This famous passage about his conversion you must picture me alone in that room in Maudlin, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. And he goes on in that passage, we don't often read it, but he goes on in that passage to say, the words compel them to come in have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. I think that's a reference to the Crusades and so on. But properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. 
and his compulsion is our liberation. So you see, whenever you feel, and some of you have felt this, you've told me about about feeling that God was at you. He was at your shoulder. He was chasing you down. And, and you felt that, 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 that he was a, a monster in that way. His, his, his approach to you was making your life so miserable. But now where are you? A beloved child of the Father who's got you forever. You, we tried to hide, but he pursued us. And what was happening was that the Holy Spirit was, was irresistibly calling you. Now, actually, there's, there's, more, there's always more going on, isn't there? There's more going on because we wouldn't want to think, despite the way that C.S. Lewis describes it there, we wouldn't want to think that, that God drags us kicking and screaming into his kingdom against our wills because that's not what's happening. It's not that someone is praying and saying, no, 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 I don't want to do this. So, so John Chapman was a great Australian evangelist, and I remember him telling us one time that he was explaining to young people in a school setting that their need and, and, and uh, the fact that they really needed God to save them, and they couldn't just come to God at the drop of a hat whenever they wanted to. They needed God to, to come to them. And one of the, the boys in the class was a bit of a, a wisecrack, and, 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 and he was pushing back a little bit, and he says, that's nonsense, Chapel. He said, I could come to God any time I wanted. And Chapel was a wise, a wise and tough old evangelist, and he said, okay, go ahead then. And the young boy was embarrassed for a moment. He felt all of the eyes of his classmates looking upon him. And he said through gritted teeth, I don't want to. And Chapo said, exactly the problem. And you'll never want to until Christ comes to you. And you see, what God does to us is not to drag us in against our wills, but to change our wills, because our wills will, will, will never by themselves turn to Him. There, there's no island of goodness within us that, that, will, that will respond to God, that will seek out God in and of ourselves. Remember, T, total depravity, sin has affected us so severely and, and extensively that, that we cannot come to God by ourselves. And what He does, well, to use the Old Testament language, is to remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. He, he, he changes us from the inside out. So, Ezekiel 35, you might know those verses. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you a, a, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone uh, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God says, I, I'm going to change you from the inside out. And, and whenever you change, whenever I change you, the things you want will be different. The things you set your heart on will be different. 
And the New Testament way of describing this change is being born again, or the second birth, regeneration. He brings us to new life. And that's why we read the story of Nicodemus. Jesus famously told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. We've heard talks on that so many times, haven't we? But you notice what, what it says in, in John chapter 3. Jesus says to him, is, is really his, his opening line with him, is, um, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That's strange, isn't it? Because the way that we often hear this being talked about or preached sometimes is that, well, what you need to do is put your faith in Jesus, and then, then you'll be born again, and everything will change. But that's not what Jesus says here. He's saying, without being born again, you, you won't put your face, faith in Jesus. Without being born again, you won't even see the kingdom of God. You won't grasp it. It will be a mystery to you. It will be entirely uninteresting to you. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 2 and 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Don't we see this? Don't, some of us remember this. There was a time whenever people explained the gospel to us, and we just thought, I don't get it. Some of us have friends who, 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 who we could take through the ABCs of the Christian faith with incredible clarity, and they would just go, not for me. I, I, I don't really get it. The natural person, Paul says, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. But you see, what the Spirit does is He comes to us and He gives us new birth. And then we see, we're brought to life, and we see Jesus as a sufficient Savior and a wonderful Savior, and we say, yes, I need Him. Will He have me? I, I, I want Him. And the fact that we want Him and we place our faith in Him shows that we've been born again. And that's why the best Theologians have always insisted that the, the new birth comes before faith, at least logically. Faith is, is not what gets us God's gift of salvation. Saving faith is one of God's gifts. Ephesians 2, Paul says, we read, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. So, so, let me give you a couple of examples of this in Scripture. Well, one's an example and one's an illustration, perhaps. Lydia, beautiful story. Acts 16, Lydia is there, seller of purple. And, and uh, Acts 16 says this, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart, and she paid attention. Another example, it's an illustration perhaps, is Lazarus. You know, Jesus visits Mary and Martha. Lazarus has died, <clears throat> and Jesus goes to the tomb, and He commands that the tomb be opened. And there's, there's an outcry at that, but, but He insists, and, and, and then he, 
he shouts to Lazarus. He took away the stone, John's gospel says, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. It's the strangest thing, isn't it, to picture Jesus calling into a tomb? But Lazarus comes out. Does Lazarus think about it for a while? No. Jesus calls and he obeys. And what Jesus does before he obeys is, is he gives him new life. His, his word brings life. The call is effective, you see. Lazarus is brought to life. And that's exactly what needs to happen to us. It's the, it's the strangest thing to imagine, Jesus standing, calling into a tomb. But there's a sense in which he's done it with every believer here. He stood at the, the gate of our lives, and he's called, Nigel, come out. He's done it with you. We're brought to life so that we respond to the call of Jesus, you see. So, you can see how, how this fits with everything else we've been seeing so far. All of these things is to say, go to, together to say, salvation is of the Lord. Who saves? God saves. You know, we won't get to heaven and we won't turn to, to uh, each other and go, well, you know, how, how did you get here? Were, were you brighter than the next person? Were you more broken than the next person? Did you have greater faith than the next person? No, we, we'll just rejoice in the fact that salvation is of the Lord. And what all of this does, you see, is to completely puncture human pride. It just goes against our grain. It's, it's why it's so unpopular and, and in some ways even resisted by Christians because we want to believe that there's something within us that is untainted and able to respond to Jesus by ourselves, that the, the ultimate decision lies with us. We want to think that we're sick rather than dead. But Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So, irresistible grace. By His Holy Spirit, God irresistibly calls those that He has chosen and that Jesus has died for, and He brings them to Himself. So, what? Three quick things just to finish. Three quick applications. First, keep sharing. Here they are. Uh, they're all together keep sharing. Do you remember I talked about Billy Patterson going around the streets of Drogheda and uh, Kilkenny? What was he doing? He, he was, in a sense, he was going around with that general call, with that individual, that, 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 that general uh, call to, to people to trust in Jesus. And he didn't know who was going to respond. But God knew. And so, what we've got to do is, is we've got to keep sharing the gospel because it is through that general appeal that so often the effectual call from the Holy Spirit comes. And this is why evangelism is so important. It's how God gathers in His people. It's why evangelism is possible and not futile because through it, God gathers in His people. And so, we want to say to everyone, you should turn to the Lord. Rico 
Tice puts this so brilliantly. He says, remember what God does and what we do. We, we preach Christ, and God opens blind eyes. So keep sharing the gospel. Don't give up. Keep praying. You, you see, we've got hope whenever we pray. Some of us are praying for friends for years. Some of us are praying for, for family members for years. Now, it's so easy to get discouraged. Sometimes they just seem as if the more we pray, the further away they go. But you see, we are praying to the one who has power to change them. They don't have the power to change them. We don't have the power to change them. But God has the power to take away their heart of stone, which you have much evidence for, and to give them a heart of flesh, to open their eyes. Keep praying. And then, what do they say? Keep thanking. Keep thanking. Isn't it amazing that God just burst into your life to rescue you? Why? We don't know. He knows, but He did. And we needed Him to do that. We didn't need Him to, to make a, a suggestion to us. Would you like to come over here? You know, some of us picture, I, I, I remember many, many years ago, Katrina and I went to uh, Turkey for a holiday. And we used to walk from the reasonably priced hotel in which we were staying and, and, and down the street. And, and there would be all these guys lined up Come into my restaurant, you know, and, and come and have tuna steaks and scampi and, and uh, English burgers and all these things. And, and they, would, they would invite us in. And, and they knew that, that they didn't have much hope, really, because we were going for kebabs at the end of the street. And, and you see, some of us picture God a bit like that. We think, do you know, he's, he's, just, he's making a suggestion to us. Would you, would you like to? We need so much more than that. But if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, He did that for you. He really came to you. He put a new heart in you. And if He's gone to such trouble over you, He won't let you go. So make your life a life of gratitude. And if you're here and you're, or you're listening and you're not yet a Christian, this is what you need too. You see, all of this should, should help you see that your situation is very grave. You're helpless to save yourself. Forget any notion of, of saying, well, I'll come to Christ whenever I'm ready. You'll never be ready. You'll never want to by yourself. But it may be that the hound of heaven is pursuing you and running you down. How wonderful. Turn around and meet him. And you'll find joy everlasting.